0: The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab, a media collective committed to creating a more candid dialogue about spirituality, politics, culture, and the world. To learn more, visit thetheolab.com. Where should we begin?
1: I'm wondering, really, I have no idea why in the hell you would trust me.
0: I have no idea why you think I trust you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we could stop the podcast there. (laughs) That is the. (laughs)
0: Insane. Right. Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT. And today we're having an intimate conversation between the two of us. Over the last few weeks, you've heard from all four of us, and we decided it was time to switch it up a bit. So over the course of the next few weeks, you'll hear one-on-one conversations between members of the Mourners Benchcast. And we'll talk about the joys, sorrows, and challenges of our friendships across race, culture, sexuality, family status. It should be a fun ride. Let's get into it. Trust is an interesting way to begin the conversation because I don't know if I would count myself a trusting person in general, especially with white people. I don't trust white people so much that I had a friend who was interested in a job that was available. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. This person's amazing. This person is going to get the job because they're going to be the best candidate. And your application came out of left field. And there's a particular way that my brain works. And your application was the opposite of that. Your resume, your CV was the opposite of that. I was intrigued because not only was it the opposite of how I work and how I operate, it still made perfect sense to me. Right. And so reading about you on paper, I was like, oh, let's interview this person. But I never thought that she would actually get the job because I knew that if I was going to hire anybody white or hire a white woman at that, it was going to be my, my friend.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You don't have a response to that?
1: Oh. was <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't know that you were you wanted to hire this other person until after I got here. I saw this position and I thought, "Oh, this is a great one." It's
0: like the Holy Spirit was moving. moving. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, the, and, and this is a horrible thing to do. Don't ever do this. But I just used basically the same resume and the same cover letter <laughs> for this position as I did for your
0: position. I wish that you, I would have known that because I would have never hired you. Right, I
1: know. I wouldn't have hired me either. I was like, I thought, well, I'll just send this in again because I'm not entirely sure that they'll take me seriously. And then y'all called for an interview. I was actually working at Apple and I took the phone interview with you all sitting in the parking lot of the mall. You wanted me to move down the next week. Now I know you, but then you were like, and you can come next week and interview. And I'm like, dude, I'm like a single mom. Do you understand how these things were? I didn't say those two things to you, but I think uh, you were just like,
0: okay, sure.
1: I, I was like, I don't really want to uh, turn this down, but I think I Facebook stalked you. And found out that you were queer.
0: I have to stop putting that out there.
1: I know. But for me, that meant something. It meant that queer folks were welcome. And honestly, hadn't anticipated that. And when I met you, I felt like we had known each other forever. I have no illusions that that was the beginning of trust at all for either of us. But what I know
0: is that it felt like I would known you forever. I don't know if I felt the same thing, but I do know that I was like, damn it, I can't hire my friends. Like, <laughs> I felt like it was just right.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I think a lot about everything, but there was something at a instinctual, a gut level that was, I mean, it wasn't even just a gut level. It was synergy. Like my mind, my heart, my soul, my gut was all like, Yeah, this is the right person. The thing that made me suspicious of you, I think, was there's a way that whiteness works. Mm -hmm. And some places have a thicker whiteness than others. And it's persuasive. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Black, white, brown, straight, queer, rich, poor, whiteness is always inviting us all to do its bidding. Mm. The person who I wanted to hire, we had already built the trust. And I knew that that person would have my back no matter what. Mm -hmm. But my first day on the job there, another person of color reached out to me and said, these people are waiting on you to fail. Mm. They don't think you can do this job. And they're going to work to make sure that you can't do it.
1: Mm.
0: And initially I was like, whatever. But there's something within my black soul that was like, oh no, listen to that. Right. And so that has always stayed with me and so I was always looking at you with suspicion and trying to figure out how can this person be used willingly or unwillingly to get me mm-hmm. Did you feel like I trusted you from the beginning? So
1: I don't think in terms of trust, because I don't trust anybody either. So, <laughs> it's amazing that we're here. Right, exactly. So I think the awkwardness that I felt initially was less about trust and more about the fact that you already kind of had a rhythm with the community. And as an introvert, I have a harder time navigating in. And so I was still trying to figure out what this place was and who the people were and all of those things. I remember a moment where I had been at a meeting and there were all women around the table, which was pretty impressive at this particular place because women would not have typically or traditionally been in positions of leadership. And I came back and I said, wow, it was amazing. We are, we are all women around the table. And you said, how many black people were there? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's that's exactly (laughs) what I said.
1: And I went, shit. (laughs) And I think for me, that was was a moment where I knew that I had to ask different questions. With that, you invited me to see the world differently.
0: This was probably like what, in your first week on the job? Maybe second, yeah. (laughs) I'd forgotten that that happened, but yes, I remember saying exactly that. Maybe this is me romanticizing the past, but what I saw in you in that moment is you took it seriously. Yeah, And there's a way that white people take things seriously where it's like, hmm. And I'm like, when you give me that, white people know that's not real. <laughs> you are performing. Right. Or there's a way that white people can hear something that may or may not be intended to be challenging. And they'll be like, hmm, yeah, that reminds me of this thing that I read on And it's like, <laughs> okay, I don't believe you. Stop. Like, right. Leave me alone. Right. But in the moment, you let the silence speak. And you sat there and internalized it. Mm-hmm. And I think that silence and that pause felt like an eternity. And that felt different. Hmm. And I think the next thing that you said was something to the effect of, you're right. Yeah. For me as a white woman who's been here before, that's impressive. But when you look at it through the lens of race, nothing about this place has changed. You didn't cite a source, you didn't say (laughs) what black movie you had just watched. You just (laughs) kinda said like, Hey, you're right. Yeah. But I would say that was probably a moment where a seed of trust was sown, even though I was still probably hella suspicious at you at that time.
1: Right. As as you have already indicated, you still are.
0: Yes. (laughs) Every fucking day.
1: (laughs) That That hasn't changed. When I think about that part um, that I know you don't like to engage emotions, but that emotional part of the podcast a few back called um, That Means He Won, right? Right after the. Every (laughs) single. Uh,
0: yes, that that one. was so embarrassing, y'all. I was so mad <laughs> that you left that in the edit.
1: Well, it was it was beautiful. It was It was you. color purple. This is okay you for you <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> to experience emotion. But when I think about that, and think also about how you went to a predominantly white college, and you went to a predominantly white graduate school, and work in a predominantly white institution, everything
0: has been white for me except church.
1: Right? I wonder what it's like to stand in that tension.
0: I think that the tension is standard. I was born into the tension. Mm -hmm. My life has always been a tension. I was raised like every single black kid, hearing you got two strikes against you, because you're black. You got to work twice as hard to get half as far. That was part of my formation. The first time that I went to my grandmother's house, The beginning of the interaction was talking about school and her saying, don't let them white folks be better than you.
1: Mm.
0: Don't let them white folks be smarter than you. You got to work harder. Are you working hard? You getting all A's? A minus ain't good enough. That's common knowledge for most people today that black people are raised with those stories. At this point in my life, I look back and I'm like, damn it, we're teaching our children to be fearful. Mm. Out of necessity, my parents taught me to be terrified. And so I went around always second-guessing myself. Okay, what am I going to do? I don't want to get another strike. Are my hands at exactly 10 and 2 on this wheel because I don't want to get pulled over? When am I supposed to pull out my license? Before or after they get here. I don't want to get shot. Should I raise my hand in the classroom or should I keep it down? I don't want them to think I'm dumb. So there's this second-guessing. My life has been about living out of that, getting out of the second-guessing and being unashamed and being unafraid and unapologetic about who and what I am. And so there's a way in which front-loading the question, how many black people were there? I can't tell you how many times I've had to swallow that question.
1: Mm.
0: I can't imagine how many other black folks have had to swallow that question. I can't imagine how many more black folks have sat in boardrooms and classrooms and they're just not the culture, the climate or the space for the black person to say, were any black people there? Were any black women there? And so because I've become familiar with what it means to teach children fearful lessons, I make it a point now to try to live my life in a way that's completely aware of the tension, but also not swayed by it. Hmm. Now we're all influenced by it. What does it mean to not let it dictate what I do? When did you learn you were white?
1: That's always a question that I'm like, I need to figure out what the answer to that question is. All y'all do. Exactly. I grew up in a military base, and everything's colorblind in that situation. And
0: you've said that before. Tell me more. Because what, you're always the color of your uniform?
1: It's all merit-based, right? And I use merit-based in quotes. Because it's
0: (laughs) military got some racial shit too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Unbelievable amounts of it. But they
0: groom you to think that you're... Correct, correct.
1: And so I was in Killeen, Texas. It was the first time I think we lived off base. And I remember... Sitting like in the courtyard at lunch with my friend Katrina. And we were, we had decided that we were going to like hang out at each other's house, right? That I was going to go to her house and play. And then she was going to come to mine at some point. She went home, asked her dad, and she said, My dad said we don't let white people come to our house. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. I'm thinking maybe that person <laughs> was related to you. Um, anyway. <laughs> and I remember going, Wow, I, how old are you? seventh grade okay, and I was like, okay, but we can still play here, right? She's like, yeah. I'm not sure where things went in my reflection from then, but that was the first point where I was like, oh, I had a friend in college. see this makes, it doesn't like I'm sitting here on a microphone saying, and I had a black
0: friend in college. I think that's the thing. (laughs) You're not the first person to do this. I think most white people become aware of their whiteness the first time that a black person tells them. Right. Because many white people don't think that anyone thinks them. No one right. thinks you. You just are. Right. Like right. The, the first time I remember, I was like in third or fourth grade. We were outside playing. and It hit, it started raining. And they were like, we can keep playing. And I was like, no, nah, because y'all smell like wet dogs. <laughs> like, y'all smell like dogs when y'all get wet. And I don't want to be around that. <laughs> and they were deeply offended. But I was like, right. like in hindsight, I'm like, you were offended because you didn't know you smelled like that. Right. I've given you a blessing. I've been giving you a gift. <laughs> Now you can do something about it. Like don't swim and then come in this house because you smell like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a moment where like, oh shit, I'm white. What does he mean by y'all? Right, right. The black people not smell like this? Hell no, we don't smell like no dogs when we get wet. No. <laughs> I've never smelled it. Right.
1: When I was in college, my friend Shauna and I used to have the greatest time calling attention to the fact that you were, and we don't have to put this on if it makes me sound real racist. I mean, I know it makes me sound
0: like a white I person. I think we'll leave it on there. I want you to sound as racist as possible. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, it's good. I am really good at being that.
0: My black friend Shauna.
1: My black my friend Shauna in college. Who was black? We played basketball together, and we would be on road trips. And this was particularly funny when we were in the homes of people on our team that were far more racist. And we would go, "Hey, we're twins. Can you tell the difference?" And they couldn't deal with it. Right? That would be like there's Shauna Katie pictures. Every <laughs> that sounds really bad, doesn't was it? Was she the
0: only black person on the team? She
1: absolutely was the only black person on the team. I'm mean, gonna let you tell it. You, Marshall King, come to. <laughs> 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 but, but but that was the, like, nobody could handle it because they didn't know if they were supposed to say, yeah, yeah, you guys look alike, can't tell you apart, or obviously you don't look like But I mean, but we would walk by the fountain at DePaul and talk about how 20 years earlier, we wouldn't have been able to be doing that together.
0: To chase the thought, your parents never told you you was white. Correct. When Katrina said to you, my daddy said, we don't let white people in our house. Did you go back home and say, <laughs> Just- mama... Katrina said they don't let white people in their house. Like you didn't go process that with Janet.
1: I don't. I have no memory of it. So I'm gonna go with no.
0: Janet, when you listen, let me know what happened for real.
1: <laughs> she ain't gonna remember. <laughs> you didn't tell us. I probably didn't.
0: Where do white children go to wrestle with that? Right. I can't say that every black child tells their parents everything that happens to them that relates to their race. Part of the reason is because we don't have the language to describe it fully. Many of us are taught these core truths very early, but sometimes it's difficult to see just how much race impacts our experiences. Right. But I always knew I had a place to process that. And I also had parents who, when I didn't know what it was about, would read it through that lens for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break. That sounds like a good idea. All right.
0: it sounds as if you didn't have a space for that.
1: Correct, correct.
0: Has that changed with your daughter? Absolutely. How?
1: My mom lived in Memphis when Jordan was born, and we went to Lorraine Motel and the museum, and there was a display about the Negro Baseball League. I think it was in the same museum, or it was close by. So Jordan's like 18 months old, two years old. And I'm like, they used to have to have two baseball leagues because they wouldn't let the black folks play with the white folks. She was learning that at that age. So it's just been a part of the conversation.
0: When was Jordan confronted with her whiteness? Not through a history museum, not through an artifact, but has there been an instance where your child has been like, mom, somebody said X about white people?
1: Mm, Gosh, I'm trying to... <laughs> there was the time when she left the popsicle container in the
0: freezer oh yeah so maybe I'm the, maybe, maybe I'm the one to, <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: I'm helping your child
1: so this one time there were some leftover popsicles in the freezer near our office and Jordan had asked me if she could get one so she did she went and got one and one a rat- the,
0: the last the, one. The
1: last one, but we didn't know that until maybe like a day later, right? And and you had gone into the freezer and there was an empty box there. <laughs> Your child took. Did you? I'm trying to remember. I don't think she was there at the time because I think you addressed. I don't think
0: she was, but I think I left it in there.
1: Yes, you left it in there. And then the next time she was there, you said, go get that popsicle box out of the freezer. And right. I
0: said, bring it to me.
1: And Right, because <laughs> you said, you need to take care of this because if you're not picking up after yourself, then it's either going to be a black person or your mama who's going to do it. And you need to learn how to take care of it yourself. Would that have been an accurate?
0: That's about right. I probably said it more forcefully than that. But- probably. <laughs> But did she? Did y'all process that?
1: Yes. Yes. But
0: did she prompt it? Or did you prompt it?
1: Well, any time that you have one of your- um, You
0: can make it sound like, I'm teach, horrible to your <laughs> child.
1: No. Anytime. You, you are the same with her as you are with any other human <laughs> in the world, I'm for which I am baby. grateful. Yeah, we talk about it. 90% of the time she takes what she's saying and says, yep. That's right. And the other 10% of the time, she's scared to
0: death of you. Part of it is it's the severity of whatever is happening. Right. It's muscle memory. Jordan was at that time 10, 11 years old. Maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. She comes in, happy-go-lucky. Her life is normal. Woohoo! I'm here after school. Going to do my homework in the back. No, you're not. Go over there to that refrigerator. <laughs> go to the freezer section and look at that box you left in there and bring it to me. <laughs> So right now, so now, her little precious white life, her little one, one what, what's that book called? Your one wild precious life, that poem. Her little one wild life. <laughs> what's it called?
1: <laughs> I can't even remember right now. Her little <laughs> one little white life. Wild, wild and precious life. Her wild yes. and precious
0: white life has been interrupted by a black man. No, no, no. no. Put your bag down. Go get that. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. like, she has to do something. Right. So she has no idea what's happening. I haven't said, you little white heifer. Like, yeah. I, I, she doesn't know what's happening. Right. Right. But now her body's doing something, and the whole time her brain is percolating. Why am I going to get that? Why didn't he just get it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did he know it was in here? Right. I know, I mean, yeah. that's <laughs> what my brain would be doing. Yep. Yep. And she has to come back and look at me in my face. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not trying to make blackness an impasse, but I'm trying to say, like, there's something about that. Embodied experience, yep. where but she had to come back and be confronted yeah. with it. Right, yep. hey, honey, when you do this, a black person's gonna have to clean it up, or your mama. And this ain't your house, so your mama ain't cleaning after you. Her mama doesn't do it at the house either. <laughs> Touche. She didn't have to go read Tana Coates. Right. She right. didn't have to go watch um, the Hate You Give. The Hate You Give. <laughs> right. She didn't have to watch the black version of uh, Wrinkle in Time. Pick your shit up. How many white parents have a friend with whom they they have enough intimacy and enough overlap in their interactions and enough trust where someone feels comfortable enough to say, "I'll uh-uh, go get your box," mm-hmm. and for me, that's a very black thing. It's not something that all black people do, but black people who I'm connected to it takes a village to raise a child. oh yeah. We didn't have this sort of privatized notion of what it meant to be a child and to be in a in a family in my particular right. context, yep, yeah, I don't think I said. Katie, can I do this thing with your child? I said, Katie, your child left this box. It's okay. Right. I'm gonna get it.
1: Right. <laughs> that is something that is common with us. I mean, I, I used to freak out the parents in my church because if you're in the church, then I'm gonna call you Snack back yeah, in. Right, that's what I was y'all doing. Could, I was like, Katie <laughs> smashing these
0: children. Oh, you were snatching them from and, <laughs>
1: and sometimes it was right. And sometimes people are like, their eyes are really huge, but that's what I expect. And if a parent was concerned about that, I would like, I expect you to do the same thing when my child is acting out as well. So you didn't ask me, but I expect that. And she knows that that's what I expect as well.
0: But I would say most white people wouldn't expect that of black people. I can assure
1: you. Right. They don't expect that of each other and they definitely don't expect
0: that of black people. Right. Can you tell me about the time I made you mad? (laughs) Just one, Katie, just one. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, okay, wait a minute. There's 87 stories.
1: No, I mean you and I um, wrestle with each other. I wouldn't say argue because I, I think it's different. What about you? When is one time? Where <laughs> not five?
0: Let me go to my note. Hold on. <laughs> exactly. Where's my notebook? That's hard. Yes. I mean, I, it's which is weird. I think that's that's the that's the beauty and the gift of our friendship is I'm still waiting on you to screw me over. <laughs> I think the reason that question is hard is because we very early on developed a rhythm of speaking bluntly and honestly with one another. And so I think about the times professionally where white folks would try to work around me for things that were within my job description. I think there are plenty of other times where see this trust were sown, but like Mm -hmm. moments that come to mind particularly are those times when that was actually happening and you named it not for me, for yourself. And for the person right right to to say, "Hey, what you're doing right now is trying to work around my boss, and this is my boss's job, so you need yeah. to talk to my boss about it, and even when folks still try to get you to do what I would call the bidding of whiteness right and 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 for and I'm certain for them it's innocent because whiteness always wants to be innocent, but <laughs> right. I'm not going down that path. there's no ill intent, at least they don't think there is. there may be a discomfort with blackness that they're at least a little bit aware of. But the same gift that I gave to Jordan, I'm calling it a gift, is a gift that you give to other white folks to be able to say, what you're trying to do right now is X and I'm not going to participate in that. Right. Do you know how much stress that relieves from my day? Hmm. Hmm. Now, I don't have to sit there. I think what I appreciate about our friendship is I've never felt like I've had to coddle your whiteness. And so many times when we choose to put ourselves in situations wherein we're in intimate friendships with white folks, we have to coddle them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And even in that intimacy, there's still a way in which we're being called to function in a similar manner as our ancestors have right. throughout time. But I've never felt like I've had to carry you. I've always felt like I've had a partner, mm-hmm. someone who was politically solid with me. There's an everydayness to racism. Oh my God, it's, oh my God. And it's draining. And sometimes I'm not even aware of how much it hits me until I get home. And I'm like, did that happen? Mm -hmm. And what I feel like our friendship has been to me, and I hate making white people feel good about themselves. And so if you're (laughs) listening, don't you transpose your shit onto Katie. And don't you be sitting here like, oh, my branding is da-da-da. No, you ain't got one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: this is a model to which you should aspire. <laughs> Don't you put what I'm about to say on no black person. Oh, this can only be gifted right. to you. Mm-hmm. But what I feel like I've had as a partner and someone who will walk the journey with me, I think that's a gift that not many people have.
1: Yeah, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you took on another white person.
0: I'm not taking on anymore. I'm so done. (laughs) So done. Do you have anxiety in our friendship? Like, I'm curious, like, is that a deliberate, intentional choice for you? Like, I don't know if you would name it as being politically solid with me in the everydayness of racism. Is there an intentionality on your part? And if so, what does that look like?
1: I think over time, I've been able to see the world through new lenses. Then it became starting with that moment after that meeting and ongoing is that I was able to see through different lenses and and part of that quite frankly is is with you and part of it is that there was a point at which I was the only white person in our office and most most of the other people from outside of our office that came in were also black and so um like to gather, right right exactly and so at that point like i had the opportunity to start seeing and i'm not sure i'm answering your question but i think because the shorter answer to that is yes but like i can't not see i can't unsee the things that i see now
0: what do you mean tell me what you see
1: The way that the white culture is seen as standard, as seen as normative. I mean, I cognitively understood that. I by no means want to say that I'm perfect at this, but I can see it now, like without you calling it out. Mm -hmm. Or I can see it now without other folks calling it out. Things that I thought were normative are not necessarily normative outside of my particular context. And so, because I care so deeply about you, and because i see the world that exists in a different way i take on the calling i don't know what that is but i take on the calling to
0: <laughs> to be captain save a negro
1: <laughs> right. to be the great white hope <laughs> no <laughs> i know i know but I know. i'm kicking somebody's ass if they are messing with you or i'm i'm not gonna let it happen and i'm probably i may go overboard but i don't know that there is an overboard
0: but i don't think so i mean i I don't think there is but i do have to rein you in sometime be like okay girl quick wait a minute wait a minute wait a (laughs) minute
1: exactly (laughs) exactly but i mean the language you're using is, is new so i'm trying to not just go Yes, I'm in it for, I'm politically in it with you.
0: Um. I'm choosing to name it today is that there is a political solidarity because I think for me, the personal is political. Right. Sharon Patricia Holland has this book called The Erotic Life of Racism where she talks about how racism is every single day. Mm -hmm. The book opens with this beautiful vignette about her sitting in the car with another black woman who's her junior. And they're talking, just two black women in a car, I think in like a Safeway parking lot. And this white woman comes up to the car next to them with her groceries. And she says, hey, can you move your car? Can you get out? I need to load my car with these groceries. And the author says, okay, that's fine. We'll just stay in here until you finish. White woman finishes loading up her car. And as promised, when she finishes, Sharon and the young woman get out of the car and begin to walk them to the store. Mm-hmm. And the white woman mumbles under her breath. And to think, I marched for you people in the 60s. <laughs> Now, this white woman thought she was saying something good. I know she did. <laughs> she like, you don't know my black resume. Right. You don't know that I marched with, with Martin and them. You don't know that. And Sharon chronicles her process of like, what do I do? Do I say something? And risk being perceived or called the angry black woman? Do I not say anything and let this young black sister see me swallow that? hmm And so she looks at her and she says, you didn't march for me. Mm-hmm. You march for yourself. Mm. And if you don't realize that, I don't really have anything to teach you. Mm. I don't have anything to share with you. And that brief opening vignette was beautiful. That little story was beautiful to me. Yeah. Because it's this everyday encounter. Who hasn't sat in the car talking to someone right. outside of a grocery store? Who would assume that racism could attack you there? Yep. Sneak up on you A little sneak attack yep. <laughs> To me that's why It's, poli- it's a political right. solidarity To not feel like You have to fight for me Or fight on my behalf There's a different Sort of intimacy That's required And a different Sort of intentionality That's required Around right. your relationships Yep. So I think that's why I'm naming it As a political solidarity Because for whatever Our grocery store Encounters have been There's space for me To process that And not have yes. to explain it Like so many times right. I gotta sit there And fume alone because ain't, no, ain't no other black person there. But sitting with you, was like, I can almost give you like the black person side eye. Like, do you hear this shit? <laughs> right, right. And that takes time. And I think the thing that
1: I've noticed, I mean, I was at a conference and um, there's tons of black people there who I don't know. And I, I know like... I know it's above me now. You know, I know the, like I'm starting to know the the cultural references and um, what I became aware of is that I'm just another white person there. And that was an interest, I mean, that was about a year and a half ago, maybe, yeah. And I was like, Every single place I go, I don't have a resume that I can go out. I don't, I don't have references that you hand out, but that it is continual, this building trust and building intimacy and building relationship. Yeah. And, and I've encountered that at work too, where new black folks to the community will come in see me and tighten up
0: they were cold switching i'd be like she good (laughs) y'all
1: and then they, they loosen up a little bit but i know i mean i know that it's always still there i mean i get it that is a reminder that it is a continuous daily deepening of relationships because of my relationship with you and because of um the relationships that i've been able to cultivate with folks who are not like me Conversations about race have, been, have become more prominent and more prevalent in my conversations with my white friends. And so my friends from North Carolina will occasionally comment, you talk about race a lot. <laughs> and I believe I said this morning to someone, I said, this is about race. I mean, because it's the South. Everything's about race in the South. It's all racialized in the South. And in the North too, we just ignore it up there. But these relationships have changed how I engage the world.
0: I think the beauty of that is when you develop intimate relationships with black folks and you actually care about black folks, not just in terms of whether or not we're getting killed by the police, but like whether or not we woke up that morning, Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: whether or not that racist thing that happened in the meeting is wearing on us. Like when you actually care about black people, you don't just get access to our struggle, you get access to our joy. And that's still not full access, Mm -hmm. right? But I'm saying like, so many times in this world we narrate blackness through the experience of struggle, through the experience of pain, through the experience Mm -hmm. of sadness and those are real but there's so much joy and there's so much happening. It's like one of my favorite moments with you is I don't know what you had been watching but you came in one day and you was like, there's this show on my Netflix queue. (laughs) Have you watched Greenleaf? (laughs) And I said, what the hell have you been watching to have Greenleaf in your recommendations? (laughs) Like, how did you get there? And, And not that Greenleaf is like the apex of blackness at all but like, you got to watch some particular shit to get Greenleaf as a recommendation on Netflix.
1: (laughs) And then to binge watch it. And
0: then to binge watch it and live text it to me. Right. (laughs) Jumping back to Malcolm's interview with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, I was so excited when he agreed to be interviewed for one of our earliest episodes because my introduction to Jonathan was his first book. I believe it was his first book, Free to Be Bound. Mm -hmm. And in Free to Be Bound, he talks about what it meant for him to move to North Carolina. And at first I was suspicious because he was talking about how he moved into this neighborhood. I was like, he's going to tell me how to gentrify with justice. Is that what it is? Because there ain't no way to do that with justice. (laughs) There's no way to kindly gentrify neighborhoods. But the more I read, he talked about what it meant for him to, I think he he frames it as becoming black. Hmm. And he's careful, right? He doesn't say, "I'm, I'm black now, but he talks about what it means to not moving to a neighborhood because the property values are cheaper and to invite your gay friends to open up an art studio. <laughs> and then like, he's not, but he's literally saying, I entered into these relationships and became mm-hmm. enmeshed in them. Mm-hmm. And I let them form me and transform me. And i changed change the place where I worshiped. Yeah, And I didn't go in demanding that they sing the contemporary Christian songs that were from my child. I didn't go in demanding they sing the Irish hymns. that I, I didn't go in demanding bagpipes. I went in for the sole sake of being in community with folks exactly as they were. Yep. And I let that organic process transform me. Well, that's a wrap on today's episodes and the first of a few episodes that you'll hear that are intimate conversations between the two of us. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you like by emailing what's up at thetheolab.com. We absolutely love feedback, so let us know what you're thinking. Also, if you're enjoying what you hear, go ahead and hit that subscribe or that follow button and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, you can visit us over on patreon.com slash thetheolab and send us a little love offering. It is always welcome but never expected.